Today's listener question version of Animal Spirits is sponsored by Navaplan by InvestCloud. Built on the most precise calculation engine in the financial planning market, Navaplan empowers advisors to cater their services to any client, from simple goals-based assessments to advanced cash flow planning analysis. To see how Navaplan helps model some of the concepts and strategies discussed on today's episode, please visit advicentsolutions.com. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. We get a flood of emails from people, correct? It's a torrent. Yes. Lots of questions. And a lot of times we can't get to them all on the regular show. So every quarter or so we do a listener mailbag. So we've got a bunch to go through. So we'll just kind of get into it here. And thanks again to all the people who write us in because people share very personal stuff that they probably don't share elsewhere. How much money they have saved, how much money they make. Hair loss. Yes. (laughs) Hair loss stuff. Asking Michael if they should shave their head. All right. When does frugality become a hindrance rather than a positive aspect of saving? I'm coming across this now, and I've talked to friends, family, and financial advisors that work with my parents, but I'll give you some context. Graduated college in May 2020, moved to Kansas City, Missouri to start their career. My fixed expenses, rent, utilities, internet, on average are about 20% of my gross salary. I save around 30% of gross income. That's pretty good. Even though I'm a great place financially for a 24-year-old kid, whenever I spend money on things I consider frivolous, I feel guilty. My biggest worry is that I'll become a cheap person and that I want to hoard everything I make. I don't consider myself materialistic, hence my saving habits, but money that I get from working full-time job should be spent on things that I enjoy. But like I said before, I feel guilty knowing that it could have been saved. How do I break this mindset of needing to save everything when I feel like I have a great foundation already in place? All right. I got a few things. First of all, let me give you one solution. So it's called the Nick Majuli rule. Anytime you spend money on something that you consider frivolous, and that's different for everyone, match that in a savings account or your investment account. If you spent $100 on dinner and you feel a little bad about it because it seems wasteful, well, $100 into your savings, boom. That's one way to mitigate it. However, the bigger question is, unfortunately, you don't need us. You need either Ramit Sadie or a professional psychologist, because this is something so deep rooted in your personality that a couple of schmoes like Ben and I aren't going to be able to tell you how to get over spending money. Hey, speak what are your thoughts, yourself. Ben? So just want to ask, clarify real quick. When you buy a shirt on Instagram, do you match it with a donation to lift off? I don't because I feel great about buying my shirts on Instagram. I don't consider that frivolous. Let's see. Honestly, my mindset is probably not too far from this person in the early 20s. I was always that saver and I needed to slowly work myself into becoming more of a spender. And I think there's two ways it happens. One is like a life change happens. You either get married or you have kids and it's, it forces you one way or another on this thing. So you either become more entrenched as a saver or you realize, okay, life is short. I'm going to spend more. The other thing, I think if you're a person who has your finances in order, you have to set rules in place. So if you have rules- What type for, of rules? So if you already are saving 30% of your gross income, you know what your expenses are, set aside a specific percentage of your income that is just for guilt-free spending. So if you set 10% or whatever it is, or whatever amount you have left after you have savings, like make a rule. 
if you have to like force yourself to do it and be like, okay, this percentage is something that I'm just going to spend on going out to dinner with friends and I'm going to buy everyone's appetizer or whatever, whatever it is. I think that if you're a person who is very rules-based and has this stuff figured out already, like it's okay to make a rule about it. Even though that seems like it, it's not very spontaneous, that might be a good way to inch into it. I don't think this is going to change this person's mind, but life is too short to hoard your money. I mean, I'm sure that there was an experience from this person's childhood, which is why he is this way. But the point of money, yeah, of course you want financial security and you don't want to end up in a bad place. But once you're already past that, it's a tool to be spent on things that you enjoy. Especially in your 20s when you have right, these responsibilities, are, have fun. These are potentially some of the best years of your life. And if you have so much money and you're saving so much and you want a guilt-free way to feel good about it, what feels better than giving money to charity? Yeah. Do something else like that. Yeah. Good idea. All right. Moving on. All right. Hello, left guy and bald guy. I'm wondering if you have any advice for how to think about incent. By the way, that's a joke on what? Somebody in the YouTube comment section literally called this left guy and right guy? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Stock options. All right. This person works for a Series A startup. They want to know how they should fit in with the rest of their portfolio. Their thinking is the money that they use to exercise options probably falls in the same category as my Robinhood account. Make sure your retirement plan and other savings goals are on track and otherwise have fun. Shouldn't make up more than 5%, 10% of total dollars. Love it. All right. So your mind's in the right place. All right. So here's the situation. Options worth 550 on paper. Good for you. Company is profitable and growing twice a year over year. Wait, you missed He's this. Worked- 45K to exercise that 550. There you go. Normally, I would wait until the last second to decide whether to exercise options so that I can make the most informed decision. However... Since the company is growing and already making money, I fear waiting too long and my options becoming much more expensive due to AMT, at which point I have to exercise them at a premium while still being unable to sell them. All right, here's what I want to do. I want to point you in the direction of people that know what they're talking about. There's this company called SecFi. Packy wrote about them. They are experts in analyzing startup equity, talking about phantom taxes, what you have to do. So I would highly encourage you to reach out to them to make sure that everything is what you think it is. Now, in terms of like how you're thinking about this, in terms of your overall portfolio, kudos to you for having such a large investable portfolio. That's fantastic. But I think you're thinking about it right because not only do you have risk in terms of this is your employer, But if you have too many eggs in this basket and it goes to shit, well, then that's no good. So I think that you're thinking about it the right way in terms of diversification. Yeah. I bet there's probably two ways of thinking about this. One group thinks of this as like fun money, monopoly money. It doesn't matter until it actually hits their bank account. And another group of people probably has their whole financial livelihood tied to this. And so they're waiting for it to come so they can buy a house or do whatever with it. And so I think the way that you approach that and how you think about those options probably says a lot about the rest of your financial plan. All right. Ben, you are a self-proclaimed fan of target date funds. This is true. And I've also expressed a belief that rapid and extreme monetary and fiscal intervention will result in shorter term market corrections in the future. I also do believe this. Typically, target date funds have high bond allocations well before the target date. If the expectation is shorter term down markets, an investor doesn't need a high bond allocation until much closer to the target date. The fixed income side of the portfolio is designed to get the investor through a down market and avoid selling. If those down markets don't last too long, maybe there's no need to hold bonds so long while foregoing the growth of healthy markets. Can you speak to the relationship between target date fund strategies and potential shorter downturns? This person is trying to have me put my two theories to battle. Like they're trying to, okay, Ben feels this. Ben also feels this, right? They're trying to call me out here. Square that circle, Mr. Carlson. (laughs) See, I think there's a number of reasons to own bonds in your portfolio. And, And I do believe in target date funds. And I feel like 
Target date funds are a step in the right direction to get diversified very easily when you're first starting out. I don't know how many people actually still hold target date funds as they're retiring. How much more money do you think is in target date funds for younger people versus older people? Because I think once you accumulate assets, you probably diversify beyond the target date fund. I think the target date fund is a very good introductory fund for most people. I think that the target date fund inside of the 401k is probably most prevalent in the 45 to 60-year-old range. And I think at that point, then you go out of your 401k and you roll it. Anyway, let's say people are using that. Do you need fewer bonds? There are different reasons to hold bonds in a portfolio. One of them could be, yeah, because the stock market falls and you want to have bonds there for dry powder. Another one is just a volatility reducer. So some people just cannot handle investing the majority of their money in the stock market because of the, their psychology and emotional makeup and personality. They just can't do it. So they have bonds or cash in their portfolio to lower the volatility. So I think a lot of it depends on what your tolerance for risk is. And if that's the case, then you for a target date fund, you could just go further out to one that holds more equity. I do think the answer is it depends. But you're right. Bonds at this point are a volatility dampener. However, I think the beauty of a target date fund is the target date itself, literally 2060 or whatever it is, supersedes the volatility. So I think that having a target date, again, very literally 2060, whatever year it is, gives you the ability to stick with it when things get really bad. So I do think that a target date fund, because it's wrapped in one package, gives you the opportunity to own more equity than you would if you broke the target date fund apart and owned the individual components. And even if it, we don't talk about my theory that market downturns could be shorter in the future and more Vs, I wouldn't be shocked if we had target date fund places start ramping up their equity allocation and making it higher with bond rates where they are. If they said, all right, our target date fund are going to have higher equity allocations going forward. We're going to wait longer for the glide path. I would not doubt that that happens. Someone's going to do that. All right. We pay $1,600 a month in rent and our combined income is about $120 a year. It's variable because the wife works part-time and this person is in sales. So commissions and bonuses vary. On the one hand, I am conscious of the whole you're throwing your money away thing. Yes, if I were in a home, I would be accumulating equity. But I only have about ten dollars to $15,000 I could use as a down payment right now without rating my 401k. Meanwhile, I've done the math on this. Some people are really adamant that renting is throwing thousands and thousands of dollars away, and I'm an idiot for renting. But when you take into account the unrecoverable cost of home ownership, it's tough to justify. I've been renting since 2017. Am I crazy for thinking that my wife and I shouldn't buy a home when I'll have finished my MBA and hopefully the two of us are making a little more? All right, listen, you're not crazy. You are not crazy. I think that you're thinking about this the exact right way, even prior to the housing boom. But Ben, you know what really grinds my gears that I think most people don't think about with the whole, I'm quote, I'm throwing money away on rent? Guess what? When you buy a house, closing costs, depending on where you live, can be astronomical. Taxes are costs that you're throwing away that you never get back. And in terms of principal and interest, actual principal that you're building at the beginning of a mortgage, I guess it depends on your payment, but it can be as little as 20%. So if you have a $1,000 monthly mortgage, 200 bucks of it could go to principal. The other 800 could go to interest. So I don't buy the argument that you're just throwing away money to rent. I don't buy that for a second. So I think that you're thinking about it exactly right. This is probably a take that people in this camp are getting just barraged with lately. Like, why are you still renting? Look at the housing market. It's going crazy. But owning a home is not for everyone. You mentioned like all the ancillary costs, but it also decreases your flexibility. If you're a young person and you want to move, when you move out of your home, yes, you could be leaving with equity, but you also, there's so many frictions involved in the transaction costs. Title insurance. Yeah. Like the switching costs are huge. Housing is 
although we've seen these huge gains lately, it's, it's technically like a more form of consumption than an investment. And also it's leverage that can work against you both ways. So I know there's a ton of peer pressure on it, but owning a home is just not for everyone. And if it's a decision that you realize with your finances and where you are in life that it doesn't make sense, and I don't think you do it just because you think you have to. That's not something everyone has to do. I think there is a lot of pressure to do that. But if you decided that you don't want to do it, don't try to do it because everyone else thinks you should. Agreed. Next question. Okay. In Wednesday's episode, you guys talked about how remote working could cause migration from big cities. I live in a city outside of Chicago with very low cost of living and housing, and I think your point could apply to my area. For a new investor who definitely can't afford to buy a house, is there anything I can do to potentially capitalize on this? I don't think so. Maybe. So we've talked to a company like Fundrise before that you could, I guess, diversify and invest in other real estate markets. So I guess that would be a way because they are certainly putting their money to work in where they think some of the hotter housing markets are and people are going to migrate to. This seems like the kind of trend trying to take advantage of it, though, is tricky. Correct? When this person says, is there anything they could do to potentially capitalize on this? I mean, I think the answer is, what, real estate platforms or direct real estate investment outside of a home? Yeah, I guess especially if you can't afford to buy a house yet. I was thinking, well, rental properties or something, but yeah, even that, I don't know. Here's the thing. If you're feeling FOMO about a house and stuff, I mean, I get it, but don't you think that's probably a sign to check yourself? Probably. Right? Yeah, like, I'm sure there's a lot of that. Investing when you feel like you're missing out. I mean, read a behavioral psychology book. I'm not dismissing the temptation. We all have it. So God knows I do. But I would just say to cool it. There are certain trends that you don't have to be on every one of them to make money or figure out what's this going to mean for me. That's part of investing. There's always, literally always something that you feel like an idiot for missing. And right now it's housing for some people. Yeah. All right. Quick background. I'm 35. My wife is 33. No kids, one dog. I went into investment banking after business school. We moved from New York to the Bay Area where both our families are from last November. We have over $1 million saved. Kudos to you. Wow. But given the housing market here, paying $2 million plus for a starter home is hard to stomach. Jeez. I know that's like a thing, but it's like, yes. it's like literally, it's hard to fathom. That's very bizarre. Oh, we don't expect any help on a down payment and we're fine renting a single family home for the foreseeable future, which is around five to six grand a month. To me, it seems like there are three near-term options, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. I wish I knew when this email came in. I don't know when it came in. All right. Stay in banking. And we went to single family home for a few years until we have more money saved and the housing market settles. The pay in banking is obviously a huge benefit and this would give us optionality for home purchase down the road. The downside is that I stay in banking, which is hard to imagine once we have kids. Number two, I get a new job. Not only I would be taking a significant pay cut and with an unknown effect on my future earnings, this would also impact what we could afford when we do decide to buy a house. Better from a lifestyle perspective, but worse from a financial one. Number three, move out of California and not have to worry about any of this. It sounds simple, but realistically, it won't happen as our families are here. Okay, so let's cross off number three. What do we want to tell you? Stay in banking. I'm sure it's not fun. I'm sure it's not fulfilling. I'm sure the hours suck, but you are living in a city with just a mind-boggling amount of expenses. I don't even know what how else to put it. Listen, you don't choose where you're born. Would I live in, on Long, in Long Island? On Long, would I live on Long Island? It's on Long Island. Would you say on Long Island if you weren't born no, there? No, it's not. <laughs> would I live on Long Island if I wasn't born here? Hell no. But this is where I was born. This is where my family is and it's what it is. Yes. Every winter I say, why the hell do I live in Michigan? Oh yeah, I was born here. So it sounds like, yeah, at the end they say like moving out of California makes sense, but realistically it's probably not going to happen as our families are here. I do think you're in an area though where 
other jobs are probably fairly plentiful and the remote work thing probably opens you up to some other opportunities these days. So I think it, it might be worth it with your skills in investment banking to at least consider another role. And let me just point out one thing. There was zero, just in case people are rolling their eyes, there was zero complaining in this email. None of that, right? He was just asking a question. So if you Yes, here's the reality. Yeah, some people yeah, will scoff at this, but here's the realities. This is what we're doing. Right. Yeah. And it is what it is. I just rolled over a 401k for my wife to a Vanguard IRA. Having done this a few times over the past few years, I'm struck by how complicated it remains. The fact that so much is still on paper and transacted by mail in 2021 blows my mind. Would be interested to hear your thoughts on what is holding us back from the rollover process being easier to navigate. I'm not a 401k expert. I wish I spoke to our people internally before we hopped on this one, but there's got to be a technological solution that exists that I don't know about or that's coming, right? Because this is so... No, I think this one... These places do not want to make it easier for you to move your money. That's the whole thing. But th- that's the opportunity. The way that it's done is so archaic and but y- y- I don't know, know blockchain t- fixes this, but something no, no, does. No, no, no. But do you know how long it would take to change over the whole 401k structure of the country in terms I'm not of saying all, it happens over- all the plans? and it, this? Trust me, people are going to be complaining about this in 15 years still. There's no way that you can all of a sudden- You know what? I will bet you a Bitcoin that you're wrong. Okay. Okay, so what year is it? 2021, add 15. So what is that, 2056? <laughs> Going by your math, yes. <laughs> I'm just saying, I don't see this. This is, 401ks are like the healthcare system. The solutions seem like, oh, why don't we fix this? And it's not going to get fixed. I just, there's no way it happens. I'm sorry. Okay. And now we're going to bring in Tony Stick from Navaplan to help us answer some of the more technical questions. We're joined today by Tony Stitchy Stick, COO of Navaplan. Tony, thank you for coming back on today. What's up, guys? Thank you for having me. <laughs> All right. We got a better environment this time. Last time you did the Herculean test of recording a podcast. I don't know if you were sitting on the toilet, but where were you? In a bathroom <laughs> of an airport? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a bathroom. I was in the Sky Lounge, to be fair. But there were fire alarms going off and there's people walking around me. It was a disaster. Well, but- nevertheless, you delivered. Yeah, I delivered and now we're in a much better spot. So this it feels like we're just going up. All right. So the first question that we're going to get to is, my question is, at my age, Ben, how old is this person? Did we delete that? How old is this person? They're in their 30s. Okay. At my age, am I wrong to think intentionally overfunding a 529 college savings account is a good strategy over a taxable account? So in a Joe Pesci voice, does the defense's case hold water? I think it was Marissa Tomei who said that, not Joe Pesci. But either way, Tony, <laughs> what say you? This was a fun one because I'm going to take a hot take here. I do not like 529s at all. Get out. Yep. Yeah, I know. I know. And you know what? You're a big HSA guy, so you prefer like an HSA to a 529. Why is that? Well, because there's more flexibility in HSA. And remember, I love the emergency savings account. But this, see, the problem with 529s I have is the philosophical, we're going through something crazy right now. I have five kids. I don't have any 529s because I believe that the entire higher education system will be disrupted soon. I think not only the cost of it, but how people look at higher education. And 529s are way too restrictive. If you put money in, the penalties for not using those appropriately will be hard. And quite frankly, there is a lot of flexibility in 529 with what you can withdraw for what reasons. But if you have multiple children, it gets complex. Do you put it into one or many? Hold on, pause. Let me double click on some of this. 
In terms of the penalties that you talk about, put some meat on the bones. What type of penalties are we talking about, number one? Number two, you also mentioned flexibility in terms of things that you could pay for. Answer those two questions if you don't mind. It gets even more complicated depending on the state and the state's programs and whether or not you can use that money for a a state school or a private school within that state or elsewhere. But the short story is around flexibility. They are expanding your ability to withdraw that money tax-free amongst more things. They're looking at book costs or dormitory costs, not just tuition costs like it used to be. Okay, So there is that flexibility there, but the penalties will apply if your child chooses to not go to school. What happens if your child decides that they wish to move right into the trades? What happens if your child decides that they want to join the seminary? No, you tell us. Tell us what does happen. You have to take that money out and pay penalties on that. You have to pay the penalties to use that in other forms. Now there's the standard 10% penalty, and then there's the capital gains penalty. If you were to take that money and put it into a self-managed account and apply that as a goal for higher education, that's just as flexible, but you're putting that in post-tax. So you're only paying a tax on the withdrawal. So that leaves you the ability to not use it for your child's higher education or use it for another goal. I feel a little icky with 529s because I think higher education is going to change and you're going to see a lot less individuals going to higher education over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Costs are just too out of this world. So if my daughter becomes an Instagram influencer and doesn't go to college, I have to pay penalties on the 529 that I'm saving. Once you withdraw that money, yes, you have to pay taxes or you have to pay penalties on it once you withdraw it. And then, of course, the capital gains tax as well. Here's a counterpoint, Tony. So let's just say that you don't use it and you have to pay capital gains. Well, you have to pay capital gains anyway. True. So now we're talking about a 10% penalty, if that's the penalty. Is that state dependent or is that across the board? That's pretty much across the board. So it's a 10% penalty as for the option to defer capital gains. That's not worth it in your opinion? No, it's not. But here's where it gets even more complex. And this is why all of your listeners should be hiring advisors, because you need to run your numbers at the end of the year. So if you can max out a 529 and remove yourself from a higher tax bracket, then it might mathematically make sense. Because if you take that max amount you can put in per child and dump it into 529, you might actually move down a tax bracket. Then it gets a little more complicated because if you're saving a lot of money on that and you're paying the penalty later, Okay, then it might make sense mathematically, but this is, it just gets very hard because like, what happens if your child decides not to go to college? You're going to pay that. I mean, again, this is why it's a contrarian take. I was actually debating this on the floor of a conference with Michael Kitsis. He's actually in my court. Maybe I shouldn't say that on the air, but yeah, 529s are not as sexy as they used to be because a lot of people think the higher education system will change due to these bloating costs. So listen, Tony, it sounds like if I could boil this down, you're not so much bearish on 529 plans as you are on higher education. Yes, yes, exactly. All right, so if my kids end up going to college, I'm going to be fine though. You're going to be fine, absolutely. But, oh man, I could talk about this for hours because then what if your grandparents are funding an account and you have an account funded? What if you have multiple children's accounts separately yet only two of the three go to college? It becomes very complex because there's some people that recommend only opening up one 529 and dumping all the money into that and then spreading over the kids. It just gets very hairy. And then if you have children that achieve scholarships or if you get loans, I'm just going to say this out loud again, Michael, I think you've heard- Nobody's me. listening. Just say it. <laughs> you can borrow money for college education. You cannot borrow money for your retirement. Okay. 
And that I think we all need to think about that as it relates to how we're saving and putting away money. Hey, this guy has got a bias, though. He has five kids, remember? Five kids. <laughs> five kids. And all I'm right. relying fully on their <laughs> intellect to get through college because I haven't saved them a dollar. <laughs> all right, here's one that's in Michael's wheelhouse, maybe. So this is person lives in Idaho. Four years ago, they bought their house for 209000 now it's worth four seventy five. Real estate agent says maybe five hundred if they try to sell it. Damn. They want to know if they should refinance and do a cash out loan at two point six two five percent for twenty years. Pocket a hundred grand out of that from the equity. They're thinking about selling the house, but they also could just rent it out and move somewhere else. Basically, their too long didn't read version was cash out the equity of the home, rent it out, and run with the money because rates are so ridiculously low right now. Well, Michael, like I said, you wrote that fantastic article. I love this strategy. If they have the flexibility to cash out, take that money and potentially rent or sell that home and rent and wait for the market to bottom again and buy another home, I love this strategy. But it's all based on your ability to do these things. I would love to do that. But again, I have 76 children under my home and I cannot go (laughs) rent an apartment. But I would absolutely love to do something like that because it's a great strategy. And you know what? At 2625 or whatever this is, that is free money. That is money. Here's where I think the strategy can go awry. Let's just say that you don't clear the investment hurdle necessary after taxes. Let's say it's 4%, it's 5%, whatever it is. Okay. So let's say that you don't outperform that. All right, big deal. So if you end up paying an extra twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 in interest because you don't hit that hurdle rate, whatever. Where it can bite you is one of the beautiful things about a mortgage is that it is a forced savings vehicle. And so if you are not diligent with saving in other areas of your life and you don't have the asset that's in your home, later down the road, you can run into trouble. But assuming that's not the case and you are a diligent saver, I mean, to me, this was a no-brainer. However, I don't want to position it like that because it's not a no-brainer. It's a very personal thing. I don't think there's the right answer or wrong answer. It's personal. And for me, it made sense. And it sounds like for this person, it might make sense as well. But I think this is the like personal finance topic I've probably changed my mind on the most. And because where rates are, if rates were 5%, but wait, but ben, I would have a way different theory on this. We changed our mind on this because of the housing market. <laughs> well, that too. It wasn't just interest rates, but my home went up in value by 25 or 30%. So instead of having it just sit there and be like, oh, cool, I'm doing something. I'm taking some of the money out. So to me, it was just like free money. It almost seemed too good to be true. I ran the numbers with Bill Sweet, my accountant, our CFO, my financial planner, and he laid it out for me and we agreed it made sense. No, I mean, this is the thing. Again, like you said, Ben, it's debt and how you feel about debt because financial planning, the concept is not just about money for retirement. It's about how you live your life today and whether or not you think debt's a scary thing. I love this, but it does have flavors of 2007. Remember how many people cashed out significantly and the housing market was swept out underneath them and values went down so significantly that people were underwater. And that's when it gets really scary. Now, the thing I like about Idaho and much of the Midwest, what you guys call the flyover country, is that those numbers didn't drop so precipitously during the 2007-2008 crash, where those housing values were a bit more protected due to conservative buying power. So I think this is, I love this. If they have the flexibility, do it. Sounds like a lot of fun. I think it's a lot of money. And yeah, it can be meaningful in the long run. One thing that I heard from a lot of people that were pushing back, and listen, it's this is personal, so I'm not going to say that they're wrong. It's how they feel, is don't underestimate the feeling of having a paid off mortgage. I'm not underestimating it. I was very attracted to that. And then money appeared at my doorstep and I couldn't turn it down. But if you sleep better at night having a paid off house, and listen, by all means. Part of it has to do with job security too, though. It depends on how comfortable you are with your job because that's such a critical part to this because 
at the end of the day, your home is your number one retirement asset outside of what you're saving. It is the investment vehicle that you will retire on. Not me. Not you. Not you. <laughs> you. Not anymore. <laughs> All right. Sticking with the tax deferred stuff. So is it crazy to be funding a self-managed taxable account without or before contributing to an IRA at all? Background, this person, five years or so, opened a Merrill Edge account just to screw around. It's their, basically their first non-401k exposure to the market. What well, started with peanuts, a couple hundred dollars, it's turned to a nice little balance around 30K with occasionally but not automated buying, minimal selling, letting time do its thing. Strategy is more buy and hold than day trade. Is there any good reason to do it this way versus an IRA aside from the access to the cash in a non-retirement vehicle? Am I screwing things up in the long run by doing it this way? They want to know, are they putting too much in a taxable account and not, and by avoiding their IRA, are they making a big mistake? They are, quite frankly. It's funny because on the one hand, with 529s to talk about not caring about the tax benefits. But in this case, I'm gonna talk about the tax benefits because you can max out the IRA. And if you're married and you have a spouse, you can max out his or hers as well. And those, this is money that you've already paid tax on. You put it into these vehicles, but then you don't get pinged on it on the way out. So load those up first, because if there's now more flexible IRA technologies out there, or IRA technologies out there that allow you to do the same stuff you were doing in Merrill Edge, where you're plinking around, picking different equities or different mutual funds or vehicles. So I would always encourage someone to max that out first and foremost for both you and your spouse, and then go start playing around with that fund money. I just don't see a benefit of walking away from those tax benefits in the long term, except for the liquid nature of a managed account. But again, you should never be thinking about that as an emergency fund or the liquid nature of it, because you still got to pay capital gains on it. So dump it all in those IRAs first, protect it there, and then go play with some money in Robinhood. I also think that having those retirement accounts like forces you to have a multi-decade long time horizon because of those penalties and everything else about taking it out. Like It just makes you set it aside and wait for your future self. And that's, I think, taking care of that makes it so much sense to just let that be your retirement nut and then everything else can be whatever you need it for. It's a fantastic savings discipline, yes. I think this is an easy one. And we were talking to Henry Yoshida from Rocket Dollar which was excellent. By the way, one of my favorite people, Henry, is absolutely brilliant. What he's built with Rocket Dollar, and he loves the color purple, just like me. <laughs> what he's doing there is absolutely amazing. I have a story to tell you about him later, but yeah, Rocket Dollar is just remarkable. It's funny you say that because Ben and I hung up on the phone and we were like, holy shit, I'm bullish on this thing. It was such a great idea. And he seems like a great guy. But what Henry said that was so interesting is that we have it backwards. People are safe in their qualified accounts and they go nuts in their taxable accounts. If you want to go nuts and swing for the fences and have all this churn, do it. I mean, not that he's recommending that, but if you're going to do that inside of the, of the tax sheltered vehicle. It's the long horizon, the long time horizon. Why voluntarily yeah. pay your biggest gains in your taxable account? I think this is an easy question. All right, Tony, this is awesome. I'm glad that you're more comfortable. Your arms crossed, you're laid back. This is good. Let's do this next Relaxing. time. I'm not on a toilet. We'll do, we'll do it for my office next time. All right, Tony, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. All right, Ben. I'm in my early 30s. Is keeping 20 to 30% of cash on sidelines a good plan? Options to protect myself from a correction are too time-consuming and complicated, so I think my plan would be not to sell any of my investments but continue to buy more during a correction. What are other good ways to position your portfolio with interest rates being so low? Listen, of course that's not a good idea. 20 to 30% of your portfolio earning zero, earning negative, with real returns, that's not a good idea. However, however, if you are of the type of person who is prone to panic at a 15% pullback, then I've heard worse ideas. So I don't know you. 
I don't know your investment philosophy or your investing history, your track record, but if this is what you got to do to stay invested, I've heard much worse ideas. Yeah, it depends on what your plan would be. And plus the idea that like you're going to have this fat pitch that's going to come all the time. The stock market is up 12 out of the last 13 years. Can you imagine there have been people sitting in cash waiting for the fat pitch and I'm going to wait till the stock market falls 50% again. But here's Can you imagine the thing, missing ben, out on a nine times return since the March lows of 2009? No, of course not. But the other thing is like, guess what? What did we learn last year? If we learned nothing, and I hope we learned a lot of things, but if we learned nothing, it's that fat pitches are hard to swing at. If you had 30% in cash, were you rushing to buy in March when the world was shutting down? No. But how do you think, why do you think stocks fall 50%? It's because something diabolical is happening. It's really hard to swing at the fat pitch. So- yeah, as you could probably tell, I'm not a huge fan of the strategy, but do what you got to do. Yeah. If you're doing it because of the fat pitch thing, I don't think that makes sense. If you're doing it because of a risk tolerance thing, and that's just what puts you at ease in terms of running your financial life, that's a different story. All right. Career one. I recently graduated with a general business degree from a local university, currently in the National Guard, and that's where my income comes from, but I will eventually need to transition to a civilian career. I would like to eventually become a financial planner and earn the CFP designation, but I can't see many people at retirement age taking advice from a baby-faced 23-year-old. What are some good entry-level positions to get a foot in the door in the financial planning business? By the way, speaking of baby-faced real quick, yours truly, as we talked about last week, turned 40. I went to the store this week to buy some beer. I got carded again. 40 years old, still getting carded. What do you think about that? I still got it or I never had it. Ben... When's the last time you think I got carded? <laughs> I don't get carded. Shut up. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> High school. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We get questions from young people like this quite often. And I think the interesting thing that I come across from talking to younger people, whether it's college age kids or a little older just getting into it, is young people these days are so much more knowledgeable about the industry they're getting into. Like you and I knew nothing when we were coming out of school about like, the kind of jobs there were and what we wanted to do. And if I knew anything, I would not have gone to an insurance company, believe exactly. me. Exactly. So younger people these days know that they don't want that type of role. They say immediately, I want to work for an RIA. I want to be an independent, whatever it is. Yeah. You know what an RIA is? Good Lord, you but are ahead of where most people were. To this person's point, I mean, the CFP designation is a good starting point to getting your foot in the door somewhere. But this is the type of thing where you may have to go work for a firm where you go through a two to three year training program and learn all different aspects of the wealth management industry, maybe at a company that you don't want to stay with over the long term. Because I think there's two ways of looking at starting your career. I think like there's learning and earning. So you could go to a job like the investment banking person we talked to earlier and earn a ton of money and get some good experience and then maybe go into somewhere else. Or you could go to a place where you're not making as much money, but you're learning a bunch of different facets of the business and getting in that way so you can maybe position it to something further down the line. I do think that there is something to, if you can't find your dream job right away, like figuring out what it is you don't want to do. I think yeah. a lot of people, sometimes you have to put in years to do that. So there are no great, easy solutions for a young person getting in and finding their dream job right away. But sometimes I think the if you can find a place that'll train you and show you what to do or what not to do, I think that's not a bad consolation prize. I wrote a post recently, how to become a financial advisor, because we get this question so often. I'll link to that. One of the things that I don't think I put in there was, I think the XY Planning Network is probably a good resource. There's, I don't know, hundreds of CFPs in their 30s and 40s that are probably trying to build a practice that are probably in desperate need of some young, talented help. So I would start there. Just start calling everybody on that list. All right. 
if you're really worried about inflation, you don't want treasuries right now because the rate of inflation would exceed the yield. Okay. So you drop your bid on the treasuries, which increases the yield. But what happens if the inflation fears are too strong and you drop the bid so low, you can't buy any treasuries? Then you're left with a pile of cash, which won't earn any yield and will lose even more value to inflation. So how does it work if you're an institutional bond buyer who's worried about inflation? Are inflation fears a negative feedback loop you can't escape? Do you put the cash somewhere else? Ben, you're an institutional bond buyer. (laughs) (laughs) This is a good way to think about this because that money has to go somewhere. And maybe that's part of the point here is that why do we keep seeing a bid on bonds if inflation is so much higher than bond yields? You know the scene in Happy Gilmore where shooters got to hit the ball off Frankenstein's foot? (laughs) Player where it lies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you gotta play the field as it lies. Hey, I'm sorry. Kudos to you for finally putting a good movie reference that everyone's heard of before. <laughs> I think that's part of it. I mean, like when, like let's say inflation does stay a little elevated. At what point does the bond market start caring? Is it when the Fed finally does something and tapers? I think that's kind of what this question is getting at. Like when will the bond market finally start caring? And if enough people keep buying, maybe it takes the Fed to stop buying and we see that that's Listen, finally doing it. I have no idea. Nobody knows. This is incredibly confusing. This is another thing that I learned about in the textbooks that yeah, is right, completely right. <laughs> just throw it out the listen, window. Everything. Inflation is supposed to be absolute poison for bond investors. Therefore, they should sell bonds. Rates should rise to overcome future inflation. But nope, doesn't work that way anymore. So I don't know what to tell you. This is a tricky question that I don't think many people have. A, I don't think anybody has the answer to. All right. What's next, Ben? Here's a good one for you. I think you might have even written about this. I'm a 38-year-old okay. male, started saving meaningfully for retirement later than I would like. Savings rate is maxed out and have about 200K in a 401k with most allocated to SPY. Risk tolerance is very high and I feel like I have some catching up to do. Uh-oh. What Uh-oh. are your thoughts on potentially transferring my retirement savings to a riskier fund like the two times leveraged S&P as I plan to hold and obviously not sell until my 60s? Listen. First of all, because I think you did some work on this, but starting out with that mindset of I need to play catch up can be dangerous. Very dangerous. Of course, you don't plan to sell. Nobody plans to sell. But when the S&P 500 fell 34% in 22 days, and are they talking about double or? Okay, SSO? Let me see. Yeah. So what Just is SSO? It's not like a three times leveraged. All right. Well, I mean, listen, three times I would say absolutely not. I got to draw the line somewhere. All right. SSO, what did this thing fall? It fell, all right, all right, not so bad, 52% in just three weeks' time. But in 09, this thing fell 80%. Now, ask yourself this. You're behind on savings. Can you watch your account fall by 80%? I don't care how high your risk tolerance is or how high you think it is. I don't think you could watch $100,000 fall to 20. No offense. I can't. But if you can... Then by all means, I get it. In a bull market, these things do really well, but I can't in good conscious advice. How's this? How's this, Ben? If you really want to turbocharge your savings and you really want to add some leverage, do it with a piece of your portfolio. Put 10%, 20%, whatever it is, but you can't put all your portfolio in there. You will sell eventually. Here's the thing though. This person, it's still 38. They already have pretty decent savings. I did a piece on this a few years ago and I said, like, how hard is it to become a 401k millionaire? Because there was a story about how many people actually have it. Like, how many people in their 401k have a million dollars or more? I think for Fidelity, it was like 1%. Okay, if you start at age 40, that's right around where this person is, and you max out your 401k, which this person is, what is your required return to become a millionaire at age 65? 
Ben, a millionaire doesn't mean shit anymore. Okay. <laughs> For a lot of people, it does. <laughs> I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. It's a very low number. It's like 5% returns. You don't need that much to hit a million if you're maxing out your retirement account. So if this person is maxing them out and they continue to do so throughout their 40s and 50s, they're going to be fine even with lower returns. That's what I'm going to say. Even if you think you're behind, that compound interest can really help you play catch up at the end. So I, I say keep maxing your savings out. Could you use margin in a thoughtful way? I think in a certain part of your portfolio, like could you do it with 20% of your account or something if you have the right mindset and risk tolerance? Sure. But going all in with margin, I think that's taking things a little too far. Okay. Here we go. Wife and I are in a good position to put away a decent amount of money in per month in a general Chase savings account. We're looking to buy a car here in the next six to 12 months, but are also thinking about a down payment for a house three to five years down the line when I maintain a good nest egg. The past few months, I've been a little frustrated with the fact that we've got savings just sitting in an account earning nothing. Thoughts on investing a portion of that savings to help meet the savings goal for a house? Any ideas? Our favorite question. I work in the investment research and would feel comfortable investing the savings myself. So a three to five year time horizon. Technically, you could go out a little bit in something like those I-bonds that are paying 3.5% now, which you can max it out with 10 grand a piece. That's a way to increase your savings a little bit for this, for a house. Obviously, for a car, for 6 to 12 months, that whatever you earn in that amount of time is not going to be anything meaningful. You know the problem with I-bonds, Ben? It's 350 bucks. They're boring? I, yes. <laughs> no, it's not that they're boring. It's that you can't put any money in them. Yeah, that's true. No, that's the thing. that My local credit union pays 3% on checking, which is great, but it's up to 15 grand. So yeah, you do the math and it's like, oh, okay, that gets me nowhere. So that's the problem when you figure out how much money it actually is. I think this is just a problem people are going to be dealing with for a long time now, which is my another way of saying that I think rates will stay low for a while. What do I do with my cash? Yeah. Yeah. There's never going to be an easy answer, but it wouldn't be a listener question roundup if we didn't have that question. All right. Last question. I'd like to invest 3% of my portfolio in crypto as it's becoming obvious it's probably not going away. That being said, what are the rules for investing in very volatile assets? Crypto is the most obvious and newest example, but there are obviously others. These are my initial thoughts. Dollar cost averaging. Okay. I endorse that. To minimize trading, rebalancing brands should be significantly wider than for other assets. So in my case, I wouldn't sell until it grew to be 5% of my portfolio. I wouldn't buy until it fell to under 2%. I endorse that. To avoid catching a fallen knife, have a limit on maximum dollar amount available for purchase when we're balancing. I endorse that. Your thoughts, anything else I should be thinking? I mean, I think you're thinking about it. Great. Kudos to you. I endorse. Three for three. Most people are not as thoughtful as this. Because technically it is. Let's say Bitcoin going up 90,000% over the next decade is not going to happen like it did over the last decade or whatever. I'm not going out on a limb saying that. It could still be- Wait, wait, wait. why do you hate Bitcoin? It could still be a good diversifying asset in your portfolio if you look at it this way. If you have a set percentage, if you have bands on it, and if you rebalance. Because you know this thing's going to rip your face off occasionally. But I think you have to have these types of rules. And I think if you do that, even if the returns are much, much lower going forward, you can still do well in this because it's going to be volatile and it's going to act differently than the stock and bond markets or the real estate market. If you take advantage of selling when it gets to a high point and buying when it gets to a low point in your portfolio, I think that's a great way to look at it. And I think probably there are a lot of people who it got too big, then it fell 50%. And then that makes it even harder to stomach because you lost more money. And I think that game, it really depends on how you're defining it. If you're looking at it through a portfolio management perspective, that's a good way to look at it. Hey, let's do one more. If you were planning to buy a home in the next two to three years, 
what percentage of your plan down payment and closing costs would you want in cash before investing? For example, I am probably going to buy a $600,000 home in the next two to three years and will put down somewhere between 10 to 20%. So call it 15 to 25% with closing costs. A friend said 70% in cash before investing anything. Well, I guess a lot of this could be determined by how much equity you have in your current home too, waiting, but 70% is probably not a bad line in the sand. That still gets you pretty close. And then if anything, it's not like every bank makes you have a 20% down payment. So right, so if you invest that 30%, whether you're doing it conservatively or aggressively, I think as long as you're not going to invest in something that it's going to go to zero potentially, I think I have no problem with that. If you give yourself some, again, it's about setting rules on this stuff. I mean, I think this is where our listeners seem to be pretty smart is that they're trying to set rules for themselves and figure out. And the good thing is, is that there really are no like general lines in the sand for this stuff. This is why it's personal preference and a little bit of math. So what I mean by that is, let's say that you just you take out a simple spreadsheet and you just do some scenario analysis. Okay, what happens if I have 70% in cash? And with the 30%, what happens if I earn 5%? What happens if I do really well and earn 10%? What happens if I lose 5% annually? What will that do if I do lose money? What sort of position will I be in? So you plan it out that way and then you proceed. So I think that having rules, having some guidelines, that's the way to go. That can help you determine what you invested in. If you know, I do not want to lose half of this 30%, you don't put it all in an individual stock or the stock market. If you say, I have a little more, I want to be a little more aggressive with this and earn some more money, then that can determine what you invest in as well. That's kind of how you think about all investments. You put a time horizon on it and a risk profile. That's right. All right. We have, unfortunately, so many more questions. I apologize. If I told you that we were going to get to it and we didn't, I apologize. We're going to continue to answer them on the show, and we will be back with this in a couple of months. AnimalSpiritsPod at gmail.com. Keep the questions coming. Thank you very much for listening and for reaching out. Mm -hmm.